Welcome to Sparking Genius, hosted by the Dwight Global Network of Schools, a podcast series exploring what the future of education holds. This is Sparking Genius. I'm Deanne Drew, your host, as well as Head of School at Dwight Schools New York and Global Education Director for the Dwight Network of Schools. A school is so much more than a place for academics. Besides home, it's where most students will spend the majority of their day. So when we think about our students, we must always consider them as a whole person, which includes not just how they're scoring on their exams, but also encompasses their social and emotional well-being. A student suffering from challenges with their social emotional well-being will struggle not only in class, but everywhere they go. So for schools, supporting students' mental health is paramount. And that's why it's today's focus for our episode. Here to explore this topic with us is Michael Haber, Dwight Director of School Counselling, and Grace Berman, a licensed clinical social worker who specialises in working with children. Welcome to our episode today. I've got Grace and Michael joining us, and I'd love to have an introduction from each of you so that our listeners can understand just the wealth of experience that you have. Michael, you've been at the Dwight School for quite some time now, helping us with lots of counselling expertise. Can you give us a little bit more of a background of what you've been doing and, and your time here at Dwight? Sure. So as the mentioned, I have been here a long time. I, I joke with students that I had hair when I started back in 2011. This is my 13th year. I'm currently serving as the director of school counseling, which means I oversee all counseling and counseling related services for, for my youngest learners down in the preschool to our soon to be graduating seniors. In addition to providing direct service in grades six through 12, we do a number of parent counselor breakfasts through the year, which just kind of allow us to reconnect with our parent community. We offer workshops and professional development to our faculty, but most of what we do is really with the students, both in preventative work, but then of course, counseling is nothing without the reactive work, responding to the needs of those students in those moments. Yeah, absolutely right, Michael. You're an essential part of us ensuring that our school sort of has a very strong continuity. So uh, it's been uh, wonderful working with you, and I'm, I'm excited about the listeners being able to hear from you today. Of course, we're joined by Grace today as well, who has a lot of experience in this field. Grace, can you tell us a little bit about your background and, and your time working with students and, and young people? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I'm a psychotherapist at the Ross Center, um, and I work there with children, adolescents, and adults. And I specialize in the treatment of anxiety disorders and also ADHD and behavior disorders. So I do a lot at the intersection of those two kind of types of internalizing and externalizing disorders. I see mostly individual cases, and I do a number of different evidence-based treatments largely under like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, exposure therapy, that type of thing. And I really enjoy, you know, when I'm working with kids and adolescents, the kind of holistic work of also working with parents and with schools. So to me, it's really important to be working with the environments that kids and adolescents are in. And one of my favorite things to do is to be able to collaborate with schools 
on my child and adolescent cases. And I've had some wonderful collaborations with Dwight and really admire the work that you do here and really excited to be here and to talk more about that. Well, that's fantastic, Grace. So why don't we start our episode with you and Talk about what is something that we're seeing. I know that your expertise in lots of areas like anxiety and ADHD are certainly things that schools are working with. And there's been a lot of focus recently, I think, on social emotional well-being for youth, particularly since the pandemic and as we continue to work our way out of that. How would you describe the current landscape and where we are today based on what you're seeing with the work that you are currently doing with young people, teens, uh, and so on. Yeah, you know, it's it is a tough time for kids and for adolescents. And, you know, we have the data to back that up. I think a lot of adults feel as though their teenage years were not the easiest years of their lives. But we know statistically it's harder for kids now. You know, we see really dramatic increases in anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation and attempts. We've seen this in the last decade. For example, of suicidal ideation and, and attempts, I think, have gone up in about like to about 40% in the last decade, like since 2009, I think is the, 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 maybe don't quote me on this, but those are the statistics that are coming to mind. But we know it's it's a pretty dire shift in terms of kids' mental health. And I think There's a number of reasons we don't really have causational data about exactly why that is, but there's a number of different factors that people are considering when we look at these higher rates. You know, on the positive end, there is much more awareness of and destigmatization around mental health issues. And so people are seeking out more treatment and naming their symptoms and asking for help more than ever, which is wonderful. But there's other really problematic forces that are responsible for these increases in symptoms that we're seeing. So things like technology use, social media is thought to be a really big factor with this. There's issues around kind of broader factors too, like even things like climate change or greater income inequality, gun violence. There's a lot of factors, and I think also kind of ongoing effects still lingering from the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's a a lot of, oh, and increased academic pressures is actually another thing I wanted to mention, right? We're seeing more and more of that with teens too, which feels especially pertinent to discuss in a school setting. So there's a lot that kids and teenagers are really struggling with, but I also think they're more poised to get help than ever before. It correlates so well with the educator, what you are talking about. Of course, the pandemic added another layer of depth that we had to work with our students on. But we were seeing exactly what you're sharing, either from what you were saying about the research, uh, particularly around anxiety and students self-harming and, as you said, those suicidal ideation rates. We were seeing that as educators way before the pandemic. And so I think there is so much work for us to do as we continue to sort of not only focus on where is it coming from, but then how are we helping students really embrace this? And this is probably a good segue to Michael, to you about how in recent years have you seen the destigmatization of, of pursuing mental health support in schools and having students work with us or having families work with us or going us as a school, as I think educators too, looking at ways to use access to consultants and people outside like Grace. Love to hear from you about your your perspective on that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think I've seen, you know, it's it's anecdotal, but I have 13 years at this school to kind of compare trends and compare student reaction. 
And I think if there is, if there is one benefit, you know, a single benefit that maybe came out of the pandemic is that there does seem to be a higher willingness on students to not only seek out support, but to be receptive to requests for coming into a meeting, right? I think there is this real shift that's occurred over the last decade amongst our students where they're not asking themselves, you know, what's wrong with me, but they're asking themselves, what am I dealing with? What's going on with me? How can I get some help with what's on my plate where it's not this disorder, disease, deficiency model, but it's much more of like a growth mindset. Like, here's where I am. Here's where I want to be. Who are the people or what other tools or resources available to me to help kind of close that gap? The, the pandemic has forced us to be more vulnerable. And in that has made us a little more willing, I think, to seek and receive help. The mental health field, I think, is really focusing now is focusing now much more on the health side of it, right? It's being viewed just like a physical health thing. If, if you hurt your foot, you would go to a podiatrist. If you sprained your ankle, you go to an orthopedist. Well, if you're dealing with an emotional disturbance, for lack of a better term, you might seek out a, a counselor, a psychologist, a social worker, whether in school or outside of school. It's just, you know, I, I still remember my first or second year at Dwight, I had a student come by for a meeting, his request, and he stood at the threshold of my office and did not come in. And I said, you know, so-and-so, like, I don't know how, I don't know if you're familiar on how this works, but you need to come into the office in order for us to have a conversation. And he said, well, well, crazy people go in. And I said, well, well, I'm in here and you know, I'm not a crazy person. And he said, no, no, I know. I just like, he, he really, he couldn't bring himself to come into the counselor's office and what that would mean for him. And so I said, well, you know what, why don't we just take a walk today? And we took a walk around the block had a conversation that way versus these days I have students, you know, sometimes even trying to skip class just to hang out in the counselor's office, which they're not allowed to do, of course. But it, it is that like open door policy feels much more reciprocal now. Whereas my door was always open to them. Maybe they weren't willing to come in, but now they're kind of knocking down to come in. Um, and that's just been a really like professionally rewarding, but also just encouraging thing to see amongst our students. Yeah, I would agree. I've seen that shift too. I'd still like to continue to see that shift moving. We've always got a percentage of, of families or parents or indeed students who are still not comfortable. But I do feel like students feel like going to your team, going to somebody within your team, gives them some extra strategies, gives them some breathing space. And, of course, as a school, we utilise that the counselling offers so much in a lot of what we do. It's not just oh, this child has an issue, the counselling office is going to take care of that. It's much broader than that and so useful for a school as we're considering social-emotional wellness for our kids. So absolutely. Grace, because you, you see students in your clinical setting and obviously meet with parents and so on, what do you think are some of the misconceptions that the general public might have about mental health or social emotional well-being in kids and adolescents mm -hmm. yeah that's a great question I um and I was sort of thinking about this actually as Michael you were talking about seeking out you know medical treatment for physical ailments I think that there is still misconceptions that I see often coming from parents but sometimes internalized with kids and adolescents of uh, this idea of sort of like delegitimizing their mental health concern or even though you know, we have a label for it and can recognize the symptoms of it, this expectation that they shouldn't be experiencing these symptoms, right? So like if a parent, 
of a child who has ADHD comes in and is talking to me, the expectation is like, well, they still should be able to get all of their homework done, or they should be able to be organized. Or, you know, if you're really depressed, you should be able to get out of bed and do all of these things. And it's a delicate balance between holding the perspective that they can do it and being a cheerleader and believing in their ability to work hard and get better, but also not having unfair or unrealistic expectations and taking the mental health diagnosis really seriously, like recognizing that it is going to be that much harder for this child to do these certain things because of this real legitimate and treatable condition that they have. So I think that's in a broad sense, sort of the biggest misconception. I think one more specific misconception that I think about a lot because I do treat so many anxiety disorders, I always like to sort of make this plug for anyone who might not have the awareness about the treatment of anxiety disorders because it can be really counterintuitive to caring parents and educators and adults and kids' lives. But you know, the best treatment we have for anxiety disorders is supporting people in facing the things they're afraid of. And so a lot of times what I'll see in schools, in families, when kids and teens are feeling anxious is they, can, they, you know, loving adults are helping them get out of the situation or helping them avoid the thing that is causing the anxiety, which really exacerbates the anxiety. And that's actually why we saw such an increase in anxiety or part of the reason I should say we saw such an increase in anxiety as a result of, of COVID and having to socially distance and isolate is because they, they were getting out of things like tests and socialization and these things that do cause natural anxiety, like we were out of practice. That's a whole other thing I could get into. But I think, you know, the misconception I want to just translate to everyone is that, you know, we when we can really lovingly and understandingly support kids in facing their fears and maybe breaking them down if it feels too overwhelming to do the big thing, you know, can we can we break it down into smaller, more manageable steps? Um, but it's really not about um you know, fixing the feeling for them or colluding with the avoidance. It's really about how can we help them be in this space and feel empowered to do so and build that resilience. Yeah. I, just to add to that, Grace, I think, you know, there's there's that fine line that we run into in schools, both for academic accommodations or more on the mental health and social emotional side of things. There's a fine line between accommodation and enabling. Right. And I think for anxiety and anxiety related disorders, like we really see that more than anywhere else. This idea of like, well, we want we want to help. And so sometimes help at first takes the form of avoiding the anxiety provoking stimulus, for lack of a better word. But in reality, to your point, confronting that is combating that is what's actually the only way out is through. Right. So that's what's going to get us to the other side of it. Great advice. You know, Grace, you were talking earlier about, you know, there's a range of reasons why we're seeing an increase in student mental health areas, obviously with anxiety. I think research is slowly catching up and helping us, but I think there is this sense that social media plays a very large role in increasing this level of anxiety in our youth. What strategies have you talked to families or students about in regards to helping to mitigate that anxiety related to social media? It's definitely one of the things we know as the adults working with kids. We know it's part of anxiety. It's not everything, but what do you do in regards to sort of narrowing in families and helping them figure out ways to deal with that, to help mitigate anxiety concerns. Yeah. 
It's such a tricky landscape to be a parent in these days to navigate this. And it's hard because we don't have a great roadmap yet of exactly how to protect kids and teens. Everyone is doing the best they can. We know from research that it's a bit of a bell curve. So like totally restricting access to social media is also not good for kids. We, you know, too much, of course, is bad, but, but a total restriction is problematic too, because that is where so many friendships are forming and connections are being made. And so it is about sort of finding a balance and a middle path of use. Basic ideas like, you know, having clear time restrictions, helping kids to learn to regulate their own use, which can be really tricky, but providing those parameters like they're no one should have unregulated access to social media, even adults. I mean, I stri restrict my own access, you know, like it's really important. It's a serious pull to be using these things, but particularly for the developing brain, they don't have that frontal lobe executive functioning yet. They really need those guardrails. So having timers put in place is essential. But also it's not just about sort of removing some access. It's also about filling the gaps with other things too. So we see, for example, increased social anxiety when kids are really just having their social experiences across a screen. They need that in-person social exposure and that development built out. So, you know, ensuring that they do have opportunities to build out social dynamics and relationships, feelings of success, doing other things, doing other hobbies, getting exercise, moving their bodies, getting outside the home, like really finding that balance is important. The other, I would say, unpopular with teens opinion that I have but I, that I'm very transparent about is that parents should be really aware of what their kids are doing online. You know, I always say safety trumps privacy, which is the thing that teens hate. But it's true, you know, as a parent, you wouldn't just let your kid wander around the city not knowing their whereabouts, but we let them wander online not knowing what they're doing. And, and that can be even a more dangerous place if kids aren't really equipped with the right tools to know what to do to, to, to take care of themselves and to protect themselves. So having really open, transparent conversations from both parents and teens, really trying to facilitate open communication about safe online behaviors and for, to have parents be really transparent about this is what we're doing to get a sense of what you're doing for your safety. Like we're not here to spy on you, but we do need to have a sense of what's going on. Having those parental restrictions in place, ensuring that they don't have access to certain types of websites, like all of that is important. And then to facilitate open conversations about what are your kids looking at and how is that making them feel? You know, I've had situations, family sessions where Kids have talked really openly about the amount of time they spend on TikTok, you know, looking at certain dances and then feeling badly about themselves because they can't do that or they don't measure up to these other people that they're seeing. That can be so fruitful to create that open dialogue. And that often starts with the caregivers in kids' lives. I think just to, to add to that a little bit, I think another thing that parents can do, and I, I say this as a parent who should maybe be doing more of this, is also model the behavior that you want to see. And so if you want your kids to not just be mindlessly doom scrolling through a social media app, then perhaps as a dad, I can also put my phone down, right? I don't need to be on my phone with my laptop open while watching television, which is an unfortunately a situation I find myself in quite often. My wife was going to say, Michael, how many screens? You know, I was like, oh, oh, you're right. You're right. And I put it down. So I think to the extent that we can model that for our children too, and admit this is hard for me. I feel this pull in the exact same way, but little things, whether it's, you know, we have a phone free dinner in our home, like these are small steps that you can take. And I, and, you know, I, to your point, I, I want to be clear. I, I think 
what we're seeing from the research is, is two things. One that you referenced before, the increase in anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, if we map it correlationally, those rates spiked right as some of these social media platforms were taking hold in the early aughts, right? It's not tech. I was just at last week, I was just at the nicest student support conference and I got to hear a workshop from Max Dossel from Social Awakening. And he was saying like tech is great in doses, right? But it's it's the social media, not the technology that we're seeing to really be the problem, right? And to your point, Grace, I think doing something is better than nothing, right? So sit with your kids, ask why they want this app. What are they hoping to accomplish with it? What are they hoping to gain from it? Who are they following? Occasionally ask them to check their followers list, check their for you page, right? Or whatever the app calls it and see what they're being, their explore page, see what they're being exposed to just to have an idea and then ask them questions. Oh, why do you think this is coming up? Oh, what do you think about when you see an image like this? Oh, you know, just an opportunity, I think, to bring them into the conversation. So it's not something we're doing to our children, but it's something we're doing with our children, right? You know, if you want to check something online really quickly, great. If you need to go into that app to find something, cool. But it's to your point, right? We wouldn't give a kid unfettered access in a casino. And these are slot machines, essentially. It's, it follows that same variable ratio reinforcement schedule where you know they're getting that dopamine hit every time they get a like or a, a comment or they see something. And that's what keeps them keeps, I can't say that. And that's what keeps us coming back to it. It's a minefield for parents to try and figure out, but it's something we really do. And what I often say to parents too, building the ability to communicate with your child from an early time is going to help you as you continue to navigate these very tricky areas that we're also trying to navigate for ourselves, building the plane while flying the plane, right? Michael, it's a good segue again on average, from your perspective as an educator and talking to other counsellors in, in educational settings, what grade overall would you give schools these days when it comes to the ability to address social and emotional well-being of children? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's obviously it's a challenge to paint with such broad strokes, but I think I think I would give a, a like a solid B. B plus. I think we take a step back and try to take more of a longitudinal view, you know, now versus 10, 15, 20 years ago. Part of it is we have more opportunity and more access, but I, I do think we are paying more attention to it now. You know, we are trying to stay aware. We are trying to stay active. And like I said at the top, there's this shift from, I think, being reactive to being proactive or preventative. When I was in high school, however long ago that was, we didn't really have well-being programs. If there was an issue with a child, we responded to that child. If there was an issue with a grade, the dean or the principal, vice principal came in to talk to that grade. And you know, I can't speak for other schools, but I do think here at Dwight, we're making a real effort to get out ahead of some of these concerns, which both prepares our students, but also normalizes it for them, right? Whether it's community time opportunities in our middle school where we're pushing in for kind of SEL lessons or some of our micro courses focusing on personal and social development or psychology, you know, or even public health. I think we're trying to find those opportunities to embed these things into what we're already doing, right? So it's not like today we're going to talk about mental health. It's instead part of our regular practice. Oh, and wouldn't you know it, the theme today has to do with something related to social emotional health. And, you know, I think any opportunity where you can have those 
personnel in schools, the counselors, the psychologists, the social workers to be doing other things too also normalizes that, right? So I know like one of our, our middle and upper school counselor, Helen, she's also a personal project supervisor, so advisor. So those kids are seeing her in a different light, but that also then maybe makes them a little more willing. Oh, I know that person. They're not just this stigmatized person that you go to, right? Lunch coverage, after school clubs, even, you know, we have a, a therapy dog on staff now, Hazel, who's here, right? And she comes and she comes with me to two or three days a week, which just make kids that much more willing to open up and to come in, right? That I think that presence allows us to then be responsive when those things happen, right? The systems are in place so that when they're there, they have a soft landing spot for the students. So that doesn't say like, we're not resting on our laurels. Of course, there's more work to do. But I think, yeah, I think a BB plus is probably is, is where I think we're at, you know, these days. All right, B plus, we've got r- room to grow and work to do. Grace, from your perspective in the practice, do you see any difference in how independent schools might be dealing with social emotional wellness and challenges in this area or not? It's a tough question to answer because it really varies, right? There's there's such variability in how independent and in, even within the public school system, how they're handling mental health issues. And I think a lot has to do with resources, but also priorities. I will say in my experience with Dwight, I think that you handle mental health issues very well. You know, I've encouraged people to apply to your school. I think that the, the Quest program you have is so awesome. You know, but I think I think the additional kind of like latitude and flexibility that independent schools may have in terms of the way that curriculums are built out and and sort of designed and chosen does offer additional opportunities, as Michael was saying, to really like infuse mental health and social emotional learning throughout the curriculum, because certainly I think that is the most important variable. It's great to have a social emotional class and to have that be built into you know, something that kids are doing consistently throughout the year, like to your point, that's not what I had in high school. And I love that that's so much more normalized, but it's really about not just isolating it to a class and infusing it throughout the way that you think about a writing prompt in in an English class. Like, can that be related to your own personal reflections, thoughts, and feelings? And are are there different elements of how educators can be trained in order to infuse more of a holistic sense of mental health supports throughout the curriculum? I do want to add also the fact that you have a therapy dog that can come in is so cool. Highlight of my life. Yeah, I love that. That's that's really great. And I imagine, you know, it's maybe unique to an independent school. So yeah, I think it's there's variability, but I do think I'm impressed by the way that I see certain schools really trying to the rise to the challenge of how do we best support our students and how how do we make this a top priority because it really does need to be a top priority. If the social emotional health is not there, the academics are going to suffer. I think schools are really trying to find quality, meaningful time to be able to do this and not just do it as a label or an add-on or indeed just to say to the classroom teachers, it's your responsibility. I do think schools are really trying to find ways to do that. They were trying to do it before the pandemic. It was obvious we needed to up our game during the pandemic and so much more important so afterwards. But I'm glad to hear that you're seeing pockets of schools really being very innovative in ways of trying to really address this. And the hope is that other schools will follow suit when they see the practice being successful. Michael, what role, if any, does the homeschool partnership play in that social and emotional well-being of children? Because 
I know you've dealt with such a range of family. I mean, first of all, Dwight is is quite diverse in the range of different families we have, but that homeschool partnership is something that can be a make or break, right, for how responses, reactions, and a, and an action plan to help kids with social emotional well being is so important. Sure. Yeah, I think. I mean, put as simply as possible, it's huge. I think the the homeschool partnership, uh, the homeschool connection, is plays a huge role in not only the success of social emotional well-being approach, but also just the success of the students overall. I'm a big believer in communication. I think the more communication and collaboration that exists between the adults in a child's life, although they might not agree, (laughs) I think they are better for that, right? Especially when you consider how full the, some of the plates are. Like so they, they, these kids' plates are so full, right? And everyone wants a piece of that pie. You know, course-specific teachers, athletic coaches, club advisors, theater director, directors, parents, friends. Like everyone wants their attention, their effort, their achievement. And then it's sometimes like a struggle, right? How do we fit this one more thing in? And I think when those adults are all speaking, when parents are saying, listen, they've got this going on at home, or if a teacher reaches out and says, listen, we noticed today, they just, they seem a little off their game, right? We're not, it's not upset. They're not being penalized, but is something going on? It allows, not in a talking behind their back way, right? Again, doing with them, not to them. I think that only serves to benefit the child, right? I I believe, uh, and I want to believe this about my own children, that parents know their kids best, right? I want to believe that. And that's possibly true, but we have them physically, in school, for more time, for so much time, right? And if we're not communicating, then we're all kind of operating with an incomplete data set. So if I only think of this student as an academic student, then I'm really losing so much of what makes this kid great, so much of what can make this kid feel safe and secure, supported and successful. If a parent is only viewing them within the family context, they're also potentially missing so much more of what makes that kid kind of who they are, right? And like I said, students don't always love when the adults are involved. And I think even about like, again, myself as a high schooler, you know, going to one parent instead of the other, when I thought who would be I get more success from playing them against each other sometimes even, sorry, mom, if you're listening. But I think, but I do think we, we can expect that. And so because we can expect it, we can strategize kind of around that, you know, I mean, so often in, in even in hard, quote unquote, hard parent meetings or, or difficult or challenging conversations, right? Counseling is sometimes for better or worse, the place where challenging conversations happen, both in school and outside of school. And I think it's always an opportunity to, you know, kind of borrow a phrase from um, Danya, my wife is a preschool teacher. And she says, you know, let's just, let's just do a temperature check. You know, like, how are we all feeling? Where are we all coming from? Because it sounds like maybe we're we're opposed, but really we all want the same thing, which is for so-and-so to fill in the blank. And I think sometimes when we kind of pause and name that, that's what really puts us in a position to be successful and see some real tangible results. But if we're not communicating, or if we're only communicating when the test gets failed or the class gets cut or this, or the negative situation happens, then, then we're a, we're playing catch up 
And B, we're, we're really doing a disservice to these kids. So I think, and that's why, you know, I mean, one of our pillars, right, is community. It's the one as a counselor that I'm like the most on board with. In, in my day, I'm on board with all three, but in the day-to-day. And community means partnership. It means connection. And it's an opportunity for those engagements and interactions to take place in authentic ways, which I think is ultimately the goal. I love what you're saying, Michael. I like couldn't agree more with all of that. And I think, you know, in my experience, I've definitely seen that resistance with teens where it's like they don't want people involved. But when people can really come together, the school, the parents, you know, the outside therapist, if there is one, the coach, whoever, and really get on the same page and it's framed as like, we're team so-and-so. Like, this is your team behind you, right? Like, we are your bench, you know, and we are all on the same page working to help you. It really does, like maybe there's some resistance at first, but it ultimately just serves to like buoy this this adolescent and help them feel like people can really come together to support them. And I just, I love that that's the orientation. And I just think I really can't agree with you more strongly about all of that. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I think what you're saying is segueing into what could be our final question about asking both of you about like what advice would you give a school or a parent? Obviously, I think what you've just stated about that homeschool partnership and that team effort, we would absolutely continue that advice. But is there there anything else that you think your advice now to parents, to other educators about ways to increase our efforts at supporting the social and emotional well-being of children. And Grace, maybe we'll start with you. Sure, yeah. Michael said this earlier in response to social media use, but I think this applies so broadly. This idea of modeling is so important. And you know, these things like you can't pour from an empty cup and you have to put your own oxygen mask on first. Like it sounds trite, but it's everything. And I think this, it applies to schools, it applies to parents, you know, it applies to the broader sense, how are teachers being supported within schools so that they can then support their students? You know, is there environmentally a broad enough, you know, educational and mental health support staff so that students are feeling that and, and the adults are, are not experiencing a level of stress that inhibits their ability to support? But, you know, we really do see the most learning as a result of modeling, you know? So, and I think that one thing in my work with parents that I'm often saying, parents feel the need to model this like infallibility and this sort of level of perfection, you know? So my kid doesn't see me get upset or doesn't, you know, question my authority. And when we can model our own emotional experience and normalize our own expression of and feeling of emotions and way of coping with emotions, that is just the hugest thing that you can do for your child. And being able to model, you know, a conversation that might look like I was feeling really angry about X, Y, Z, and I'm sorry that I yelled and reacted that way. And I, I would in the future like to handle it this way. You know, here's how I'd like to cope with my anger. And this is what I'm going to try next time. Or in this moment, I'm feeling really stressed. And so I'm going to take some deep breaths and take some space to help myself calm down. You know, like oftentimes that's not the thing that we first think of to do, but it is the best thing that you can do for your kids in really being able to model that. That's really great. Michael? Yeah, thanks. I think to, to build off one thing Grace said too about the idea of, you know, modeling from like a self-care standpoint, right? We did, I, we ran some workshops for teachers last year where we talked about self-care being a form of like routine maintenance, right? It's not this indulgent spa day necessarily. It could be 
a five minute walk scheduled in your calendar three times a week. That just like you need to like get your oil changed and your tires inflated in your car. It's not about, you know, the extra car wash. It's about just function. But I think the advice I would give is, is to borrow or steal from Nike is just do it, right? Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. You know, progress over perfection, coping over curing, and to exercise like thoughtful patience. You're not going to change the ethos of a school or even the culture of a family in a day or even a year. So start small, right? What programs do you have in place? Look at them with a critical eye. If you identify gaps, then how can we start to fill them, right? It might be piecemeal, but um, small steps add up, right? Uh, there's that quote that I've seen attributed to Desmond Tutu. I'm not sure if it was he who said it, but you know, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? And so I do think both for families and for schools, sometimes it's just saying, hey, we see this, so we're just going to go step by step, day by day, point by point. And I think even from a school-based program, again, well, maybe we'll start with this this year and then we can build on it and grow to kind of tailor to the needs of our communities. Yeah, great responses. It's a massive undertaking. I think whether you're a parent or an educator, you you see this behemoth of work that we still have to do. We know the value in it. And I think a lot of the advice about self-modeling, one bite at a time, whether it's an apple or an elephant, thanks Desmond Tutu for that one, is so necessary for us as well. Because as the adults, we could get anxiety just thinking about what we're not able to do yet. So again, it is a work in progress, but I see a lot of the benefits as you both do coming out of this we see how teachers are really responding to this and parents are really coming around and we see the benefits in the students as a even in the very youngest of years in preparation for those harder years of adolescence and teens look thank you so much for both of you for joining us today i know we could sit here and continue to talk for a long time about this maybe it's another episode in the future but i'm so grateful for your expertise today and uh, thank you so much for joining us Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Grace. Thanks, Michael. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I want to extend a huge thank you to our guests, Grace Berman and Michael Haber, for joining us today to discuss social emotional well-being in students. And thank you for taking the time to listen. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating or review and tell a friend. This has been Sparking Genius from the Dwight Global Network of Schools. I'm Deanne Drew, and until next time, stay inspired.